still morning. So, uh, good morning once again. Um, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you so much for just worshiping. It's always a joy uh, to be here with you guys. Uh, as we continue in our worship, let's uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. I will continue in our series, Encountering Jesus, um, where we're looking at powerful and unique encounters that Jesus has with individuals that changed uh, these lives forever. Uh, but what we, what we get in these encounters is an inside look at who Jesus Christ was and is, still is, and uh, the reason why he came uh, to this earth. Uh, and so once again, that's John chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 2 through 11. Keep your Bibles open there. Uh, you know, last week we, uh, we saw a meeting that Jesus had with an individual that was pretty scandalous and controversial. Uh, we, we saw Jesus at a well alone uh, with a woman. And that alone would have been enough to just cause a collective, uh, cause a collective gasp uh, to the audience because uh, single Jewish men will not be seen alone with another woman. Uh, but this wasn't just any woman. This was a Samaritan woman. Uh, now, a little bit of background. Samaritans and Jews, they did not like each other because Samaritans were half Jew. Uh, Jews saw them as impure, sellouts, right? unworthy of God's kingdom. And so they created rules and laws actually to avoid Samaritans. Uh, Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would actually go all the way around their country in order for uh, them to avoid any contact with a Samaritan person. But this was a Samaritan woman that Jesus is alone with at the well. But again, not just any Samaritan woman. She was a serial adulterer. She had five husbands. And the man that she was with at the moment she met Jesus, that man wasn't even her husband. So she was just sleeping with another man. This is like the trifecta of disdain for Jesus to encounter this woman. She was a woman, first of all. She was Samaritan, and she was an adulterer. And what we see Jesus doing is something very beautiful. He confronts this woman of her sins, ultimately to convict her, to offer something more than just these temporary satisfaction in men, but everlasting water. He offers her salvation. That's my daughter. Um, he offers her salvation, and she receives. And we see such an amazing transformation. She went out to the well in the hottest part of the day to avoid people because of her shame. And after meeting Jesus, she runs into the very populated city to tell others about Jesus. No more shame and no more guilt. And so we saw that last week. I want to encourage you, if you didn't listen to the message, go back and listen to it. Today in our passage, we see yet another adulterous woman being brought before Jesus, but the circumstances are so different from last week's woman. And so let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word, starting at verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. Amen. You know, in most of your Bibles, you have this bracketed statement that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53 through 8, verse 11. Uh, now, I want to just talk a little bit about why this is in here. Uh, in the earliest, earliest manuscripts of John, John's gospel, this actually story was not even in there. Only later on, uh, actually in the Greek New Testament, we see this story being included. Now, there's several reasons why uh, that's the case. Because the language here is, is foreign to John's language. It actually is more appropriate with the Gospel of Luke. It fits more with the Gospel of Luke. But we still want to treat this as God's word because I believe this happened. This is consistent with Jesus' message and his person. And so I'm going to treat this as God's word. And so if you had questions about why this, is, why this little bracketed statement is there, actually you can look it up and there's several articles to explain why. But what we have here is yet another encounter. Last week, the encounter that Jesus had was very private and secluded. It was just Jesus and this woman at a well. Here, the situation is so different. It is out in the open. She's put on trial publicly. And so what we want to see in this passage are the three parties included in this encounter that Jesus has. First is the accused. Second are the accusers. And lastly, the acquitted. And these will be the three main ideas of our message today. First, let's look at the accused. Starting at verse 3, once again. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we don't know who this woman is, where she is from, or anything else. All we know is that this woman was most likely engaged or married, but she was caught sleeping with another man. It was the scribes and the Pharisees that caught her in this act. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, you got to think them as kind of the, the pastors or the lawyers of Jesus' time. They were expert of God's law. And so they were the legal and religious authorities of Jesus' day. And they brought this woman to Jesus. But as we're just reading this, immediately something should stand out. There's something wrong about this picture. Because as far as I know, adultery takes how many people to commit? Two. But yet only the woman is brought before Jesus. Where is the man? Why is he not there? You know, ultimately, we don't know. Maybe he fled on foot. Or maybe the scribes and the Pharisees actually let him go. But we don't know where he is. But already we know that this is suspect. Something is suspicious. Something is very wrong here. See, it was, common, it was common in the first century Palestine for women to be under greater scrutiny and to receive the, more of the blame in situations like this. Right? This was kind of the, the male-dominated, chauvinistic kind of culture that, that Jesus was ministering in. And so immediately we see unfair treatment here. Something is very wrong. The man is not going to stand trial. Only the woman is. And so she's dragged to Jesus, and we're told that Jesus is at the temple, and he's teaching people, right? And he was probably in the outer court where women were actually allowed to worship. And this woman is, being, is standing before Jesus. Now, we have to put ourselves there. And if you're brave enough, put yourself in the woman's shoes, in her situation, Imagine the humiliation, 
the shame and the guilt of being caught, of being exposed. Right? There's no way out of this situation. This is not a case of mistaken identity. There are eyewitnesses. And there's no doubt of how this situation should be handled. There are actual rules and laws that govern people at this time about this situation. And so the evidence is overwhelmingly stacked against her. And what she thought she was doing in secret is now coming to the surface and everything is exposed. See, being exposed for who you really are is one of the most difficult things to endure. Right? Because the shame and the guilt and the humiliation is overwhelming. It's suffocating. Now, I've shared my past uh, to this community before. uh, And this woman's story reminded of me and how I got exposed during my college years. Uh, I dealt with a very severe gambling addiction in my college years for two years. For the first year, uh, it, was, it was pretty much a secret. It was kept hidden. No one knew about my addiction. Uh, but as I was reading about how this woman got exposed and the shame in him, all my memories started flooding back, and, and I remember how I got revealed. Uh, you know, I was... Um, I banked with Bank of America, and one of my sister's friends, well, she was a branch manager at the bank. And uh, as you guys know, uh, overdraft fees are pretty high. And so branch managers had the ability to actually waive those fees. So I went to my uh, sister's friend and asked her, hey, can you waive some of these fees that I've had uh, in my account? And she's like, yeah, sure, no problem. But what happened was as she was looking at my account, she saw some very unusual transactions a large sum of money coming in, a large sum of money coming out. And she, she knew me very well, and so she, she was concerned. And so what she ultimately did, well, first of all, she, she violated client confidentiality by sharing my financial information, but she ended up calling my sister and saying, hey, is your brother okay? There's something fishy going on with his account. And so my sister found out what I was doing because uh, there was detail, uh, details in my account that was shared with her. And then my parents found out, and then my friends found out, and my church found out. They found out that I was addicted to gambling, and my, and my addiction was really deep. I was deep into it. I can't, I can't share how humiliating that was for me, how, how full of shame and guilt I, uh, like I, I was at that moment. Uh, I, I wanted to run away and hide. I isolated myself. Uh, I, I fell into a, a deep depression. And at the worst, worst point of that time, I, I wanted to kill myself. Uh, and that's how bad it got for me. Right? Self, self-hatred. It was a dark place. And now, so for many of us, we don't know uh, what it's to experience this type of public exposure and shame. And I think that's a fortunate thing. But this woman is brought before Jesus, bare and everything is out in the open. See, most of our sins are done in private, right? It's done in our minds. And we keep it hidden from one another, our friends, our spouse, our children. Um, and, and, you know, others, they have no idea of how sinful we really are, right? Our sins of lust, coveting, hatred lying, cheating, and even unfaithfulness in marriage can go, can go unnoticed and unchecked. And the scary thing is that you can go weeks, months, and maybe even years of going unnoticed and unchecked. Uh, 
of our sins. And when that happens, something dangerous starts to occur. You think you're getting away with it. You're actually thinking you're getting away with it. See, although our sins may be hidden from the public eye, the scriptures tell us that nothing gets past God. God knows everything about us, our darkest and deepest sins that we commit behind closed doors. He knows it all. Before others, our sins may be concealed, but before a holy God, we are no different than this woman. We too stand accused. See, the thing is, we could trick one another in our Insta stories, Facebook posts. We can dress up. We can put on a smile. We can say the right things. And, and we could fool others in thinking that we're actually better than we, uh, we are. But the truth is, we cannot fool God. We cannot pretend before him. And we cannot hide our sins. And so like this woman, we stand accused. The evidence is overwhelming. We are guilty. We are guilty, all of us. See, looking back, I can, think, I can now thank God for exposing me. Although it was so painful and humiliating and shameful, I'm, I thank God for exposing my sins and my addiction. I believe it was God's loving discipline for me. He was saving me from my self-destruction. The question I want to ask us today is, what sin are you terrified of being exposed of? The sin in your life that you think you've managed, that you think you've domesticated, you have a handle on it. What is that sin that, you, that you're just so scared that's going to be exposed for the world to see or your friends to see or for your spouse to see or your children? What is that sin? As this woman is on trial, we too are on trial today. She's guilty and she's awaiting Jesus' verdict. And equally waiting in eager anticipation are the accusers. They're waiting to see what Jesus is going to say. And these, this leads us to our second party that we want to look at in this encounter. The accusers. Verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against them. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. See, the accusers are quoting Old Testament law, which allowed capital punishment for sins of adultery. Now, under the theocracy of, of Israel, which is the rule of God, included in the civil laws are penalties and punishments for sexual sins. And the most severe being execution by stoning. So this was within God's law. However, the main interest of the accusers aren't what well, wasn't for them for Jesus to observe the law, but rather to test Jesus so that they can bring a charge against him. But once again, if we look at the situation, it's suspicious. The question is, how do they know this woman was going to commit adultery? Where? When? How? And with who? How did they know? to be at the right place at the right time to catch this woman. This whole, this whole situation seemed pre-planned by the scribes and Pharisees. They were going to use this woman as collateral for their own aim, and that was to discredit Jesus. So why go to such extremes to basically sacrifice this woman to put Jesus on trial, to, put, to test him? 
The reason is because Jesus was a threat to them, to their, to their way of life, to their traditions and their culture. Jesus came on the scene just breaking all barriers. See, the Pharisees and the scribes were trying to uphold the law. The law was the way that you become a child of God. The law is the way that you can get into the kingdom. Jesus came and said, no, repent. God can forgive you. Prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, God will accept you if you repent. Jesus was destroying the very fabric of their society and culture. And so they wanted to catch Jesus slip up. They wanted to catch him slipping up. And that is why they brought this woman to her. And this was a very elaborate and well-thought-out test for Jesus. Why? Because if Jesus says, no, I'm not going to stone her, he's disregarding the Mosaic law. And as a Jew, you do not do that. So as a rabbi, he'll be discredited. He'll be discredited, disqualified. But if he got down and he picked up a stone, he's contradicting his message of grace and compassion and love. Not only that, if he picks up a stone and he actually throws it at this woman, he will be under trial from the Roman government because the Roman government was currently occupying God's people. Only Rome can issue capital punishment. So then Jesus will be breaking their law. This was a really well thought out plan by the scribes and the Pharisee. But they were going to sacrifice this woman's life to do so. See, they weren't wanting to uphold justice. They wanted to secure their self-serving agenda. And then what does Jesus do? This is awesome, guys. This is amazing. As the people are, as accusers are waiting for Jesus, for his verdict, what does he do? He stoops down and he starts just doodling with his finger on the ground. He knows what their whole plan is. He knows their attention and he's just dismissing them at this point. Now, commentators are, are trying to guess what Jesus was writing. We don't know. This is one of the questions that I want to ask Jesus when I, get, when I see him. What were you writing in the sand? What, were you drawing a picture? Were you writing scripture? We, no one knows. But he did not give them the time of day because he knew what their intentions were. Verse 7, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What is Jesus doing here? See, the scribes and the Pharisees were using the law to test Jesus. What does Jesus do? He counters with the law. Because in the Mosaic law, the people that catches the adulterers, they are the ones who actually get to throw the first stone because they witnessed it all. But the, but the key thing is, you cannot play a part in that sin. You have to be completely guiltless in order for you with integrity to, th- to pick up a stone and throw it at the sinner. Do you see the genius of Jesus' argument? How did the scribes and Pharisees know? And if they knew that she was going to commit adultery, why didn't they stop it? Genius. The greatest argument that Jesus did is, if you had no part in this, you pick up the first stone and throw it at her. And the accusers, knowing what they did, they couldn't pick up a stone. Do you see what's happening here? The accusers become the accused. The accusers become the accused. 
They played a part in this, and so they could not pick up a stone. And one by one, we're told that they left. Verse 8, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is accused here. Yet only one will be acquitted by Jesus. Only one will experience mercy. And this brings us to our last party, the acquitted. See, what's astonishing here is the woman stuck around. I I don't understand this part. If I was this woman and I looked around and one by one, all my accusers were leaving and I'm left alone standing before Jesus, that's my opportunity to book it. I'm going to get out of there. This sucks. I'm in a public space being accused of, of, of a crime that I committed. All my accusers are gone. This is my chance to leave. But yet she stands there. And what happens next is completely astonishing and surprising. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now again, there's something wrong about this. What just happened here? Where's the justice? How can Jesus being God just let a sinner go? Right, there were eyewitnesses. There's no question. She committed a crime. The evidence is indisputable. See, all the J's in this room, you know, the Myers-Briggs, the J's are like just shaking their head. They don't like this, right? Isn't Jesus an INFJ? Like, does Jesus Jesus flip his J to a P at this point? Right? What's going on? Doesn't this contradict the very holy nature of God where he demands justice for wrongdoing? What is going on? How can Jesus just let this woman go? Please don't misunderstand the lesson or the point of this encounter. We are not to turn a blind eye towards sin. And a lot of people, even a lot of pastors will say, yeah, you got to just show grace to one another, constant grace after grace. Look at what Jesus said. That is not the main lesson here. Because Jesus gives her a final command. From now on, sin no more. See, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to call each other out on sin. But what is the attitude and the manner in which we do that? Are we going to put our brothers and sisters on trial? Or are we going to try to lovingly build them up? See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were trying to destroy this woman. They were against this woman. When we call each other out on sin, we have to do it in a loving way, speaking truth and in love. And so we're not to turn a blind eye towards sins, but we are to lovingly confront one another. The accusers were against her. And what we see here is Jesus was for her. So if that's not the lesson, what is the story about? What's the, what's the main idea? What's the whole point of this? Here it is. It's about a depraved, guilty sinner encountering the divine mercy of God. It's about a hopeless sinner meeting a kind and generous Savior. See, what this woman deserved was death. 
She deserved stoning. But yet, she's acquitted, pardoned, set free. And that is what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And this woman did not get what she deserved, which was death. See, the crazy thing is everyone was accused. Yet the accusers ran away and hid from God, from Jesus. They were hiding from their guilt and shame. This woman was left exposed, alone with Jesus. Her guilt and shame laid out in front of him. And she alone experienced divine mercy and forgiveness and grace. The truth is no one wants to be exposed. None of us wants to be exposed for who we really are because it's painful and it's shameful. So instead of coming to Jesus, honest and real, we try and hide or pretend. We, can't fool, we, we can fool others, but we can't fool God. See, when we hide and pretend, right, when we try to cover our shame and guilt with ourselves, what we're doing is essentially trying to get people to like a version of us. Right? We're just trying to get the person to like a certain version of us. Right? But those relationships are shallow and superficial. Because in order for someone to really love me, they need to know the truth about me. Everything about me. And that's why I'm amazed at Jane. Because she knows everything about me. And yet, she's still committed to me. Even more so with God. But the thing is, we can try and pretend. We could try to put our best version to God, concealing the true nature of our sinfulness. See, the sad thing is, many of us, we think we've convinced God. We've convinced, we fooled God. Because we come to church, we, we look all nice, we know, we know what to say. We do the right things. But if we keep on pretending, if we keep on covering our own shame and our own guilt, mercy and grace means nothing. Grace and mercy means nothing. Why? Grace and mercy means something. It's amazing to who? Those that are guilty. Those that are on death row. Those that are condemned. Grace and mercy means nothing for the self-righteous. Grace and mercy means nothing for those, those people that think that they're okay. Brothers and sisters, the mercy of God is an amazing gift because it comes at a very high cost. See, payment cannot be made by the offender. The payment for mercy must be given by the one offended. That is why it's mercy. Someone needs to absorb the cost of this woman. Someone needs to absorb the cost of our sins. And it cannot come from us. See, sin against a holy God warrants the highest penalty. You know what that penalty is? It's our very lives. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. But not just any death, an eternal death. You know where we're going to pay off that debt? In hell. Hell is where we're going to be paying off our eternal debt for our sins, the crimes that we committed against God. 
So then if sin is committed against an eternal God and there's an eternal debt, we need a payment of an eternal kind. Does that make sense? That's why religion doesn't work. We can't just pay our own way. How can finite, sinful individuals pay a payment to an eternal, infinite God that demands an eternal debt to be paid off? We need a payment of an equal kind, an equal weight, of an infinite, eternal weight. And that is why Jesus came. Only an eternal God can make such a payment to cover an eternal debt. See, this, equipment, uh, this woman at this moment was acquitted of her sins. She was let go free. She does not yet know and understand how her pardon was granted, how it was afforded. Ultimately, she did not understand yet at this moment. See, God condones nothing. He condones nothing. His justice needs to be satisfied. And, his fine, and he finds his satisfaction in the cross. See, it is on that cross where we see both an extension of mercy and the upholding of justice. That is the only way that you and I as sinners can be acquitted, to be pardoned, is the cross. Mercy extended, justice upheld. The doctrine of propitiation explains this truth. And I want you guys to know that word, propitiation, because it is a very unique word that only Jesus Christ actually really can, we can explain this only through Jesus Christ. And I want to read you a quote by one of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer. It's going to go up on the screen. Propitiation, that is, as that which quenched God's wrath against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. God's wrath is his righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. It shows itself in retributive justice, but Jesus Christ has shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice by becoming our representative substitute in obedience to his Father's will and receiving the wages of our sin in our place. By this means, justice has been done. For the sins of all that will ever be pardoned were judged and punished in the person of God the Son and is on the basis that pardon is now offered to us offenders. Beautiful description of what propitiation is. The guilt of sin obliterated. Jesus averted the wrath of God that was meant to fall upon us. He absorbed it so that we can be acquitted. So you know what this means? You know what was the final words of Jesus on that cross? It is finished. Our trial has ended. Our freedom was won. You know, I've been listening to uh, the Serial Podcast. I've been getting into podcasts these days. And Serial Podcast, not the cereal that you eat, but S-E-R-I-A-L Podcast, I highly recommend it. Season three. Uh, There's some profanity in there, so just a heads up. Uh, but it's about the criminal justice system in Cleveland, Ohio. It's fascinating. And you learn a lot about how decisions are made in the courtroom. And, and come to, I, I, I came to learn that a lot of the actually trials, I mean, a lot of the cases never make it to trial. What happens is the defendant, the one that committed the crime, gets together with a prosecutor and they try to reach a plea bargain. Just at that moment. 
to give them a sentence at that moment. So what happens in a plea bargain, sometimes the prosecutor will remove one or two charges so that this person can not have to go through trial because that's a lot of time, that's a lot of money. And there's so many felonies going on, so that's how they move things quicker in the, in the justice system. It's, it's amazing. There's a lot of weird things that I've learned about the criminal justice system. But this really brought to my mind of what happens in God's courtroom with you and me? What happens to you and me in light of that system? So let me explain it to you. We are the defendant. We are guilty of sin. So we, we, we meet the prosecutor. The prosecutor is the law, the law of God that demands perfection. We're not perfect. We'll never be. And, and the verdict is clear. The sentencing is very clear. Death. You deserve the death sentence. So as a judge is standing there reading off what the final verdict is, at that moment, Jesus steps in. He looks at me and says, hey, you can leave. I'm going to take your place. Jesus becomes a defendant. He was without sin. He lived a perfect life. You would think that the judge will, will find out a plea bargain with Jesus, right? That he will show some leniency. After all, that's his son. No plea, is, no plea bargain is met. Jesus decides to take the full weight of the penalty that was due to me, and he takes it upon that cross. No leniency. He bears the full wrath of God on that cross for you and me so we could be acquitted and he can be as if he's condemned. To die as a sinner, guilty for sins that he did not commit, but because he loved us so much, he took our place. To close, I want to talk to two people here, two groups of people here. First, can I speak to those that stand here or sit here accused? Not by me, but by God's law. See, if the law is the standard to get accepted into God's kingdom, no one can. Everyone falls short. Everyone is condemned. Your verdict is guilty. What you're in need of is a generous, merciful Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. He took your place. He died the sinner's death for you. I want to ask you to consider Jesus as your Savior and Messiah. Take your plea to him. See what he does. He takes all of it for you on that cross. Place your trust in him. And you're acquitted, pardoned for good. If you take that step today, please come and talk to one of the pastors. We'll love to pray with you. The second group I want to talk to are the acquitted, those that are Christians here. Our trial ended at that cross. But the truth of the matter is, the accusations have not stopped. Accusations keep coming from within, from others, from Satan himself. He is the accuser. And so the accusations have not stopped. God can't love you. Why would God love you? You're such a hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian? You're so dirty. You messed up your past. Look at the past, your past. Look how messed up it is. Look at all the broken relationships in your life. How can God love someone like you? How can God accept someone like you? Oh, you sinned again? That sin again? 
You're such a failure. Do you see? Accusations do not stop coming. I know there are people here that struggles with depression and anxiety. When you're having an episode, that is the opportune time for Satan to come to accuse you. You think God still loves you? God's left you. He doesn't care for you. Lies keep coming. Accusations keep coming, coming and coming because we still struggle with sin. See, when we're accused, our instincts kick in. Our instincts kick in. What is our instinct? Okay, okay, what do I need to do, God? What do I need to do to make up for the mistakes? And so what we do is we go back to the law. Okay, I'm gonna read the Bible more. I'm gonna pray more. I'm gonna give a little bit more. I'm gonna serve a little bit more. And maybe then, God, you'll accept me and love me. That's what happens when we feel accused. Right, instead of grace and mercy, which is the basis of our relationship with God, we go back to the law, exhausting ourselves and then disappointing ourselves. And then we're stuck in the cycle of the law, which never can, never can appease God's wrath. Someone already did that, guys. It's done. It is finished. The trials end. The case is closed. It's not going to reopen again, guys. The, the cross says it's done. We are saved. We are redeemed. You are loved. You are accepted. You are approved. You don't have to make payment. Christ did that for us. Do you see the secret of the Christian life? The secret of the Christian life is not you. It's Jesus. The journey of the Christian life is to discover how amazing the cross is, to uncover the beauty of Jesus Christ, the riches that are afforded to us because of what Christ has done. When we discover that, when we, when we discover more and more of that, you know what happens? The allures of this world, the temptations of the world, it doesn't look, it doesn't look any. It doesn't, it's not appetizing. It's not attractive because Jesus is better. Approval is be His approval is final and complete. Why? Why look for anything in this world? when Jesus has accomplished it all for us. Brothers and sisters, my, my encouragement, I'm begging you, look at the cross again. Don't assume anything. Look at it again. Look at what Jesus did. He won our pardon. He made us his children. Jesus Christ is the perfect savior. He's the one that can truly satisfy. Let's seek after him. Let's run after him. Let's look, at, let's look at the scriptures anew and see how amazing the gospel is for his glory and ultimately for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. The truth of the matter is, God, we, we stand here accused, guilty of sin, of treason, of rebellion. But we know because of what Jesus Christ has done, we have a completely different verdict that we are redeemed, that we are free, that we are your children. God, I want to pray for the brothers and sisters here who feel hopeless at this time because we know that without your grace, we are lost. I pray that you will save them today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will convict them and help them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ on that cross and help us, Lord, to trust in you. And for those that are here, God, that, that are hearing the accusations again and again, 
where we're doubting your goodness, we're doubting the work, the finished work of Jesus on that cross, God, I ask that you would help us to hear those beautiful words of Jesus. It is done. It is finished. Help us to live as redeemed, blood-bought children of the Most High God. Help us, Lord. Help us to know you better. Help us to see Christ for who he really is, a perfect, loving Savior who generously laid down his life for sinners like me. God, we give you all the praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.